fact that Chinese absolute poverty has absolutely plunged in the past 20 years as China was brought in to the global trading system. And as a result, uh, poverty has, has gone off a cliff in those places. So I think in economic terms, I really don't see the argument that globalization failed. Welfare states are designed in many of these Scandinavian countries helps to protect the, the losers of these policies from falling into sort of traps of despair and, and cycles, of, uh, cycles of despair as well. A profound economic shift may now be underway. It appears that the era of globalization could be coming to an end, uh, with recent crises and concerns about the rise of China directing governments towards increasingly interventionist closed policies. We've seen a rise in industrial policy and trade protectionism back in vogue. But do these policies risk backfiring by making us poorer, less secure and damaging the environment? Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Esch, and I'm the IEA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, is globalization over? To discuss this, I'm very excited to welcome Callum Williams to the podcast. Callum is a senior economics writer with The Economist and author of the book, The Classical School, The Birth of Economics in 20 Enlightened Lives. He's also the author of a special report, for The Economist last year entitled Homeland Economics. Callum, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So I, I think you, in your reporting, have identified something quite real and meaningful, which is a sense in which global policy elites have very much turned against globalization. What do you think that the main factors are that have been driving this backlash? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, The Economist is often thought as an establishment voice. But in fact, you know, in, in arguing for uh, in favor of globalization and free trade, we now find ourselves kind of in the minority and certainly not uh, arguing uh, for what the quote unquote establishment is 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 arguing. Um, and you're absolutely right. There has been uh, the formation over the past few years, really, of a consensus, which says that uh, the uh, kind of hyper globalization of the 1990s and 2000s failed. And the, the argument goes that it failed on a number of, of fronts. Um, but I, I think probably the two biggest ones are um, the argument is that it failed uh, in uh, sort of economic terms. So it didn't deliver the gains to uh, many people in places like the US and the UK and France and, and so on that were promised. So the argument goes that globalization led to higher inequality it caused, you know, deaths of despair in the Midwest and deindustrialization in lots of places. And so that failed. And then uh, the second main front on which it failed was that supposedly the pandemic, the COVID pandemic and the fallout from the pandemic revealed that um, in the pursuit of economic efficiency, um, markets failed to be resilient. And so uh, there were lots of problems with supply chains, as we all know, in uh, particularly in 2021. But then in 2022, uh, Europe in particular faced big problems to do with energy, with with you know Vladimir Putin weaponizing Russian air gas supplies. So, so really, kind of two opinions have formed: one that it failed in economic terms, and two that it failed in geopolitical terms. And so now we're moving into this new phase, which we've called homeland economics, which essentially rejects many of the maxims of the 90s and 2000s versions of globalization, and says there's a better way forward, and we're going to pursue that. There's a certain irony here, of course, that uh, The Economist, in, in fact, you might even say similar to the IEA, has been quite consistent in its free trading principles um, for, in The Economist's case, um, almost hundreds of years, in the IEA's case, almost uh, 50 years. Um, 
but it, it seems there was a short period where that was the consensus for you in that 90s to 2000s era and we've had a, a turnaround against it, which, which you know, if you're consistent with your views, um, puts you on the wrong side. I think what I find intriguing, though, is the sense in which it's, it's almost kind of bipartisan now. So you have the Trumpites and, to some extent, kind of national conservatives in the UK, certainly a lot of um, Brexit supporters in the UK who might have a narrative around left-behind areas. Um, but even on the left side of politics, you now have Biden um, continuing a lot of Trumpite policies accelerating industrial policy and then you have Rachel Reeves talking about things like securonomics it doesn't seem like you can't really get away from that you yeah totally and it's not it's you know you're absolutely right Biden has kept in place basically all of the tariffs that Trump uh, put in place but I think um, Biden also uh, the, his administration has learned a kind of deeper lesson from from the Trump experience which is that you know if if America wants to bully the world it, it it can it still can it still has enough economic power where it can bully the world you know trump discovered this with the crackdown on huawei when he was when he was president but if you think about the say the way that uh, biden uh, has designed um uh, various parts of the inflation reduction act and the chips act america has enough money at its disposal to lure companies away from places like the eu and the uk it can spend enough money to get what it wants on a global stage and that's a really important you know lesson uh, that that i think uh, biden learned um th- i mean there are now other countries as you as you point out in the uk case that are basically saying well if america can do it we should do it too so the uk mm-hmm. is one example macron super interested in it india a little bit more under the radar is implementing a huge amount of industrial policy at the moment japan is doing it um, obviously, China is doubling down on on it too. So, kind of everybody's uh, Australia is doing it. Basically, everybody's at it. I would quest. I, I think if it's go- if it is going to work anywhere, it would work in the US precisely because the US has that enormous economic power and potentially in China. But really, as you say, ever everywhere's kind of thinking about doing this now. So let's um, unpack the premise here, which is: do do we think that globalization was a failure? In the in that nineties nineteen nineties to two thousands era, was was there an kind of an under overpromise and under delivery in terms of what free trade was was meant to achieve? Well, I suppose a weak argument is that it overpromised and underdelivered. But I think with any economic system, its proponents will overpromise and underdeliver. That's the nature mm-hmm. of politics to a degree. Um, I I still think that in the popular view of the nineties and global nineties uh, and two thousands version of globalization. People focus on the costs and, and and really miss the benefits. So if we go back to the, you know, the kind of two-part argument against globalization, the first part being that it destroyed the middle class, led to higher inequality, uh, and pr- provoked deindustrialization. The the most careful academic studies on this question find uh, that things like the quote unquote China shock, from cheap imports to parts of the Midwest in the U.S. Like that's real. Some people in the US did lose their jobs as a result of Chinese import competition. I don't think any serious economist denies that. What matters though is quantifying. Like how big? How big is this? How how big is it? And it's pretty small. And then how do you weigh that up against the benefits from Chinese import competition to the US? And they're pretty big. So I am not convinced. And I think the studies show this very clearly for other trade agreements like NAFTA. I don't think that. Uh, the, the the net the net uh, effects of globalization on people on middle incomes, people on low incomes, the working classes, so on, 
was negative quite quite the opposite uh cheap goods are a huge boon to people on on low incomes and i think that's that's very clear and then of course if you look at the poorer countries that were that were brought into um uh to, to globalization and then in the 1990s uh the benefits there are are even easier to see i think you know yes we may today view china as an adversary perhaps for good reason but you know we we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that chinese absolute poverty has absolutely plunged in the past 20 years as china was brought in to the global trading system and that's also true for lots not to the same extent but true in many many poor countries where they have managed to find niches in in global markets to export goods and services and as a result uh, poverty has has gone off a cliff in those places so i think in economic terms, I really don't see the argument that globalization failed. The argument that globalization failed in, in geopolitical terms is a little bit more complicated and requires thinking about it, I think, more more subtly. But I still think uh, it is it, ultimately I, I come to reject that argument, too. Um, there's a view that uh, in the in the pandemic, uh, supply chain failures revealed uh, the sort of inherent contradictions of of globalization because, you know, supply chain failures caused inflation and for a while it was difficult to get hold of certain, you know, chips and 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 parts from China and there were big delays at ports and all that kind of stuff. And and that's true. But I think we have to remember that like we were facing a once in a generation pandemic. Um and there was lots of stuff going on that no one could reasonably have predicted uh, before it happened. The Chinese economy, the work, the workshop of the world, went into you know uh, months, months, months long, extremely strict lockdown uh, for 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 at least a year. And so you know, I think that even the best designed economic system uh, in the sort of you know wildest dreams of of any economist would have struggled to uh, to, to to deal with that. And in fact, we did some analysis in the report looking at actually quantifying this question. Well, how many supply chains? actually did fail during the pandemic and it's a question that very few people had actually bothered to ask because you know most people tend to focus on these like these kind of these quite kind of lurid examples uh that the media reports about but you know actually the vast majority of uh of uh, supply chains during the pandemic actually uh, did did fine and, and in fact you know inflation of eight percent in the us is bad no one likes inflation of eight percent but like relative to the scale of the shock facing the global economy i think the global economy actually did pretty well and of course we see this again with what happened in uh, the following year with with russian uh, energy so yes we there's a there's an argument to be had about was germany in particular too dependent on russian gas perhaps yes that may have been geostrategically a mistake perhaps but if you actually look at what happened when energy prices went through the roof in 2022 how did german industry respond most people thought the German economy is going to collapse overnight. Germany is dependent on cheap gas from Russia, and uh, now gas has got expensive, so the German economy is screwed. The German economy is not doing well, um, but the economy has far from collapsed. And if you look at what, if you look at the actual, you know, the careful academic studies on how did German businesses respond to energy prices going through the roof, on the whole, they actually coped. They coped kind of okay. They shut down certain particularly energy intensive activities, but they, they actually did fine. And so, you know, I think what the past year of geopolitical uncertainty has shown is not that global markets are fragile, but actually that global global markets are pretty strong. They've actually done a pretty good job given what's been at stake. So 
I think to conclude from what's happened over the past two years that globalization failed is actually completely wrong. Yeah, I mean, it, there's so many different ways to, to go from go from there, but it, it does feel like one of these classic cases where globalization has a large number of dispersed winners. So we, we have a broader economic prosperity that comes out of it. Um, but it's always, and, and you know, the, the classical free traders would also make this point, that there are um, consolidated groups of losers. You know, classically in the Corn Laws debates, those losers were the agricultural um, aristocratic landowners were set to lose as a result of importing more food. That doesn't mean that you don't import food. It means you acknowledge the losers and you say that, that there is a broader kind of like public good. For a short, relatively, you could almost say short period of time, that was was understood kind of post-war that oh, keeping everything open and freely trading as much as possible would be in everyone's benefit. But perhaps that was only ever kind of like an elite consensus. There wasn't you know, there was if you did polling, free trade never seemed to poll particularly highly, particularly in the US and the UK and across Europe. The idea of protecting certain industries always seemed quite popular. Um, obviously, industries would advocate for their own protection, and in the case of agriculture, for example, have always been quite successful. It, maybe part of the issue was that the the kind of like so called elite consensus for free trade was and shallow was it was it on kind of shoddy political foundations it kind of it worked but it was hard to see the benefits of it because they were so dispersed what, what, what i'm wondering what you think about that in terms of was it some was it like over egged as a consensus at one point and now we're seeing the fact that it wasn't even that strong in the first place well i think there was a certain naivety about the losers if you if you read the kind of documents say that were put out about free trade from the george w bush administration in the in the 2000s there's a sort of it's they're, they're often quite kind of dewy eyed that you know free trade is going to be great for everybody all the time and we should pursue it as uh as enthusiastically as possible you know the way they talked about china um the way that clinton in particular talked about china was again it was going to be a strategic partner of the us and it was going to lead to the land of milk and honey for all and yes that's that's not correct and as you as you rightly say, uh, as with really any economic policy, it's not just free trade; it's really any economic policy. Um, it it can have net, if it has net benefits, it will almost always have losers of some sort. That's just the nature of. I mean, that, I think that's really one of the great lessons of uh, of economic ways of reasoning that you are always encouraged to acknowledge that there are always pros and cons, there are always trade offs with any kind of policy, and likewise with free trade, there are trade offs and there and there are losers. Now, I do think America um, has done not the best job over the past 30 years of acknowledging that truth. And so you do have pockets, and I do think they are pockets, to be honest, of places where the effects of free trade were bad. And um, Trump, to his uh, credit, was able to acknowledge that those losers did exist and uh, acknowledge that free trade in some cases has had caused uh, damage to certain communities and was able to profit politically uh, from that. I think the thing that we forget, though, often is that it didn't have to be that way. There are plenty of countries, especially in Europe, which are far more open to trade than the US and yet deal with the downsides of free trade much more effectively than the US ever did. So, you know, the US actually, because it has such a massive internal market, is not even that open to trade, really. It never, it never, never really has been compared with places in Europe like Italy, uh, 
uh, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of the Scandinavian countries, which are on the whole extremely open to free trade, but don't have these problems of the quote unquote left behind areas that the US has and have never really had the same kind of left behind areas that the US has today. Why is that? I'm sympathetic to the argument that the way that welfare states are designed in many of these Scandinavian countries helps to protect the the losers of these policies from falling into sort of traps of despair and and cycles of uh, cycles of despair as well. You know, t- to cut a long story short, the way it works is that benefits in places like Denmark are generous, but they come with very strict and effective conditionality, which essentially say you can have uh, you know. A big, you can have a lot of money from the state in the short term, but we need you to go and find another job and train yourself up to get another job. Now, I think that's worked quite well. The US and to an extent the UK has never really adopted that kind of policy very enthusiastically. So I think that was a mistake. And I think it's one of the reasons why the political consensus against free trade uh, came to an end or, or in favor of free trade came to an end. Yeah, I think the other element that, and, and you identified this as well, is the impact of technology being mixed up with trade. So there have been far more job losses in manufacturing as a result of productivity improvements than there have been of trade. But those two things kind of look the same and therefore people blame that the technology as a result. I mean, I do also, I, I do wonder about whether it's the extent to which in, in UK, US, um, people aren't moving to where the jobs are. Um, that, that is like an internal mobility issue in the UK caused more than anything else by lack of housing around the most productive cities, which leaves people trapped. This this seems to be the, the central issue with the whole idea of leveling up, where we're going to try to ensure kind of equal economic opportunity across the country. But it's like it's almost like a mathematical impossibility. It's like London has amalgamation effects. It has scale. It has financial services. You, you can't replicate that elsewhere in the country. Um, but you can I, ideally have more people living in London and more people able to benefit from those amalgamation effects or more people living in Birmingham or more people living in Manchester um, and, and and being able to access those kind of urban economies, which is where modern prosperity is and we've locked people out from that. Um, so rather than you know, this kind of fanciful idea of creating, spending a bit of money in some particular community to set up some um, highly subsidized but inefficient factory, um, letting people move out of those communities to the extent to which they might be open to it and willing to do it to look for a better job. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think the, I, I agree with you, in, uh, of course, in, in sort of abstract terms. I think if you hold that up as what is required to make uh, globalization work in a political sense, I worry that you'll never get, uh, you'll never be able to implement free trade. You know, it's, you're, 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 arg- you're arguing there for something which would be, a kind of wholesale change to the way the UK economy works. Yes, it, you know, in economic terms, it would be great if London was the size of Tokyo, but that's obviously a huge undertaking. Um, so I think more realistically, I mean, in a sense, it's a more realistic proposal to say, if you lose your job because of free trade, we, the government, will literally just pay you a UBI for the rest of your life. You know, that would be significantly less expensive than uh, than what you're proposing, even if it's not the first best policy. I, I agree that what you're proposing is the first best policy. There are smaller scale policies that can be implemented uh, to help people who who lose from the effects of free trade. You don't have to, you know, top to bottom re-engineer your economy to get that done. You know, housing in Sweden and Denmark is also really expensive. So they have these same problems too, but they are able to maintain more of a political consensus in favor of free trade than the US can. 
So the, the I suppose the other part of the argument is, is not only that free trade hasn't been as bad as it's um, put out there to be, it's also that um, what is coming to replace free trade or the policies that are um, uh, kind of opposed to free trade are also problematic in themselves. So I wonder if you wanted to give us a bit of an idea by, by what you mean by, you've used the phrase homeland economics, what are the main features of that alternative? I guess the main features really are um, fundamentally to produce as much as you can at home. That's kind of what it. That's that's kind of what it boils down to, and that's true for the UK. It's true for the US. It's really true for any country that that uh, that, that embraces homeland economics. But there is a, there is there is more of an emphasis on certain industries than others. So there's a real emphasis in homeland economics on quote unquote strategic industries, uh, and they encompass things like. Um, in sort of ingredients for computing, so kind of things like chips, semiconductors, that kind of thing, uh, and also um, clean energy and uh, other things like batteries and and, and th- AI as well. Sort of things that people who work for think tanks deem are the necessary ingredients of having a thriving economy in the 21st century. And as I suspect we will discuss, the boundaries between a strategic and non-strategic industry are very fuzzy and, and to me totally unclear but there is a general consensus that certain industries are strategic and therefore we should spend public money on developing those industries domestically well i say not people who work at this particular think tank but perhaps uh, some some other unknown think tanks are, are pushing down the uh, industrial policy um line i mean i think it's worth unpacking a, f- a few elements of this, so that the first the first big one is is the China um, elephant in the room. So a lot of the um, efforts when it comes to things like semiconductors, batteries, solar panels is a direct response to this sense, this feeling that China has succeeded in industrial policy. And of course, there are other examples used, um, the the DARPA example historically in the US, South Korea. I wonder what you make of that kind of an argument that well, okay. China did it. Why shouldn't we do it as well? Why shouldn't we spend hundreds of billions on this? Yeah, it's a great. You're, I think those, in fact, you're totally right. It's DARPA, South Korea, and China are the three kind of classic examples that are used in favour of industrial policy. So, um, uh, le- yeah, let's talk about China because that's that's the one that's 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 kind of current, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, the argument is that that China did it and is now is now completely dominant in a lot of industries globally. So it's completely dominant in solar power. It's pretty dominant in wind turbines. It's becoming increasingly dominant in uh, electric vehicles. I suspect I, I have no inside information on this. I suspect that within a few years, people will start talking about Chinese passenger planes as being a big threat to Airbus and Boeing. Um, they are making serious strides in, in passenger planes because of industrial policy. And so, the, as you say, the argument is, well, if China could do this, why can't we do it? Now, again, this, so this argument is a bit more subtle. I think it's possible to acknowledge that, yes, China is absolutely a global leader in those industries, without question. I think it's also true that it is a global leader in those industries as a consequence of Made in China, the Made in China policy, which started about 10 years ago, and other industrial policies that have been implemented. However, what I think is also true, and what I think is demonstrated very clearly by the academic literature on this question, is that success in that small number of industries has come at a huge cost for the remainder of the Chinese economy. And there's, as I say, there is good work on precisely this question. And essentially the argument is that the distortion 
of the of markets in China, whereby resources are forcibly redirected towards these strategic industries, has meant that other industries have lost. They've lost capital. They've lost. They've lost talent. They've lost access to government officials. They've lost all the things that you need to become a successful industry. And so, you know, things like electric vehicles and solar panel solar panels have essentially leached from the rest of the Chinese economy. And, you know, it's important to remember that the sort of odd, the oddly kind of dual-faced nature of a lot of the Western coverage of the Chinese economy, because on the one hand, we say they're a huge threat because they're so good at all these industries now. And on the other hand, we say the Chinese economy is weaker than it's ever been. Now, my contention is that those two things are two sides of the same coin. Um, and so I, I think it would be wrong for us to look at the Chinese example and say, that's what we want to emulate, because I don't think it is. At a point that's misused by the China is actually just significantly poorer than, than Europe and the US and, and is at risk of not getting out of the middle income trap. So though they might be a slightly bizarre economy in the sense that they've specialized very successfully in a, a certain number of you know, leading edge fields, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have broad base prosperity um, there might be a big economy because of the number, the, its size, number of people, but there is still a lot of poverty in China and a lot of uh, much lower average standard of life um, that seems to be missed out here. I don't know whether you're kind of more optimistic about China's chances, but that it it, it does seem quite difficult in so many ways. The, the extent to which their economy is just boosted up by unaffordable, to some extent, unaffordable debt, the housing sector that seems to maybe not come crashing down, but certainly significantly weakening. It doesn't seem like the, the the central economy model, while it produced some huge amount of prosperity compared to um, under the the full um, Chairman Mao era, right? it does it's not quite reached Western levels um, under under the model and under President Xi. That seems even less likely because if they're doing more and more, if if what if what we think we know about industrial policy is true, which it doesn't deliver kind of efficient economies, um, and what we think we know about entrepreneurial dynamic you know, relatively free market economies is that they lead to more efficient companies and more innovation, then they shouldn't, genuinely, they shouldn't be that much to worry about in China. Okay, they can massively subsidize our solar panels if they want, go for it. But, um, and and we can get, we can benefit from that globally if they're willing to put all that money into it. But it's not necessarily good for the Chinese people. I think, I mean, I do agree. I think it's at the same time, not important, it's important not to lose sight of the, of the broader facts about the Chinese economy, which is that it is still growing pretty quickly. So it's not, you know, when people talk about Chinese economic weakness, it's all relative. Like, yes, it's not growing at the in absolutely insane rates of the 2000s, but it is still growing by, I mean, if, if, if the UK or the US were growing that fast, I think we'd be, we'd be quite happy. Um, whether, you know, I kind of go back and forth on, on, on whether or not to be bearish about the Chinese economy. And there are people at The Economist who, 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 who know much more about this and think about this much more deeply than I do. Um, you know, it, I think it's without question that... You know, China has a lot of really amazing companies, really amazing entrepreneurs, and really amazing cities. You know, um, I, I mean, just the other day, I, I I live in San Francisco, and I've started taking driverless cars around. Uh, they exist in San Francisco, and I think you know that is obviously amazing. But then I discovered that in fact they've been around in. Someone told me they've been around in Shenzhen for in Shenzhen in China for ages. So it's like there's lots of amazing things that are going on in China, and so I think often. Because a lot of people in the West sort of want China to fail, to be honest, they go a bit over the top in saying, you know, she's crashed the economy and it's all disaster and it's going to be a huge debt crisis. I, I don't think that's correct. But I think your point about catch up is, is, is also correct. 
at present, Chinese productivity growth is actually really weak. It's very, very weak. And in fact, has been weak under Xi really for his whole 10 years, 10 years plus in office. Um, and so that means that catch up with the US will, will, will take longer. But, you know, catch up is still happening. I mean, I don't think we should, we should, we should deny that catch up is still happening. But industrial policy in China is, is hurting that catch up and certainly not helping it. So another one I find quite interesting kind of thinking about industrial policy in, in the West is, um, and I, I think I agree with you, it's undoubtedly true that industrial policy has succeeded in some ways in China. You can point to historical examples in the West or South Korea where you might find examples of having succeeded. Now, of course, the contrast to that is um, the, the cases in which it has failed um, and the unseen costs of industrial policy. So so time and time again, uh, this is not exactly a new debate in the UK about uh, classically trying to support um, alternatives to American companies to uh, in in technology is has been going on since uh, the 50s and 60s and 70s. It's not exactly something that hasn't happened before. Um, the same kind of story with British Volt and, and building a battery factory in the UK. It's, it seems like there is a lot of cost involved with this that isn't acknowledged by people who just say, oh, now industrial policy works. I mean, isn't it the problem, though, that industrial policy was a struggle for all the reasons it struggled in the past, that policymakers aren't necessarily very good at picking winners? And perhaps on top of that, in the UK context, maybe it will to some extent work in the US context to be seen. In the UK context, there isn't a lot of money around to be spent on industrial policy at, at scale. The, the capacity of the UK government to borrow doesn't seem to quite be there without the markets having some kind of um, negative reaction. Yeah, I agree. And, and in fact, it, it, it really did come home to me doing the research for the special report, just how unsuccessful UK um, uh, industrial policy, in the, in, particularly in the 1950s, really was. And you know, if you're looking at GDP per capita of the UK compared to the US, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we, as I said, as a British person, were really a long, 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 long way behind the US. And we're, we're a long way behind today, but we were much further behind then. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that really was a consequence of, of, of the pursuit of, of national champions, uh, as you say. And the evidence so far uh, from, uh, you know, various experiments that have taken place over the past few years have, have also not been that encouraging. But I think there's a, there's a sort of looming problem for people who argue in favor of globalization, which is you sort of politically, you only need one of these things to work. And then you're you're off to the races, right? Because you can you can champion that national champion uh, in political speeches. You put it in your manifesto, and uh, emotionally, a lot of people will think we can do this, guys. Like we can pick winners, and it will work. And so all it you know, let's say for example, uh, who knows that there'll be some uh, the UK government will like take over Graphcore in Bristol, or it will create some supercomputer in Edinburgh for AI or, or something, and it will be a great success. And um, people will learn the wrong lessons from that and think, well, we, if we can do it with this, we can do it with anything. Um, and so that's sort of my my fear. And that's true. That's also going to be true in the, in, in the US as well, right? So if TSMC, the big Taiwanese semiconductor company, does end up building this big fab uh, plant in Arizona, which it may never do because it's finding it really hard to do. But let's say it manages to do it and Biden is still in office. I mean, can you imagine the, the political win that they will take from that, that they can say, yeah. we have reshored our domestic capacity for production of semiconductors and now we no longer need to worry about China invading Taiwan. You know, that's going to be huge. But there, as you as you have said a few times now, the hidden costs 
of those uh, proposals will be much, much harder to see. And so politically, much, much harder to argue against. To some extent as well, they're, they're already using one example from recent history, which is the, the COVID vaccines as a kind of an industrial policy success story. And and undoubtedly, I mean, undeniably, the, the government's, UK government's decisions, even the US government's decisions under um, President Trump and Operation Warp Seed to throw a lot of money at the problem um, to existing companies, build up their capacity very quickly and get that out um, was a big success. But I, I think the problem with that example in particular is that it's kind of so unique. Normally you can't put loads of money into every single imaginable or a, a range of imaginable technologies and normally you don't have one goal. I think this might be the, the other issue with industrial policy is is we're not picking a small number of areas, but the economy is so vast um, that you don't know what you're missing out on, what other things could be done. In the case of vaccines, it's completely justified to put a lot of money into that one thing. But in other cases, it's, it, it is that unseen of where investment capital might have otherwise gone to that you didn't know and you couldn't know about because everyone was focusing on trying to get a government subsidy f- to do whatever they want. Um, but before we finish, I want to get um, your thoughts on the other major justification for industrial policy, which is the kind of green agenda. Um, it, it seems like uh, putting subsidies into producing solar panels or wind turbines um, and tackling decarbonisation through job creation seems to be very much mixed up into this narrative um, as, I suppose, almost as an alternative to kind of a carbon taxation solution um, that can be more positively spun by politicians. It seems that narrative is is quite broadly used and broadly supported kind of green jobs um, approach to industrial policy. I'm wondering what you make of that. So you're right. Like the, you know, a- a- any sensible person in the US will tell you that carbon taxation just won't work. Um, and some of the most uh, strident advocates for carbon taxation in the past, Ed Markey, the Democrat, being a classic example, have given up on carbon taxation and they're moving to other things. Um, and the argument is that you know no one no one wants to tax, so we'll, we'll we'll subsidize things instead, which is which is uh, which is kind of fair enough politically. Um, so I don't you know I think our line on this is that we we don't necessarily have a problem with uh, subsidizing things that need to be subsidized in order to eliminate market inefficiencies. And you know climate change is clearly a market inefficiency. The idea of making it easier for people to adopt uh, clean energy and, and and EVs and all that kind of stuff seems on its face, I think, kind of reasonable. I think the problem comes where, when you uh, try to combine it with this other goal, which is to uh, to have to have green jobs. Now, the problem essentially comes in, in the US case because um, there's a very good research from the European Central Bank that focuses on this question and essentially says... Um, Let's imagine the, the US is able to implement the Inflation Reduction Act and it has all of these subsidies and domestic content requirements and job creation programs under the IRA. What happens to the global system of clean energy? Now, need I say this? It's obvious, but what matters for climate change is what happens at the global level, not what happens in a particular country because carbon mixes in the atmosphere, which is global. So what you should care about if you care about the IRA is what happens to global emissions, not what happens to American emissions. Now, as it happens, all of the analyses focus focus pretty much on what happens to what happens to American emissions. So in a sense, they're not that useful. The ECB paper, uh, European Central Bank paper, essentially says that the IRA is going to introduce certain inefficiencies into the global market for clean energy. And it will do this because 
companies will have an incentive to take subsidy to go and locate in the US. They won't be able to export things from outside the US into the US because of the tariffs, and so on and so on and so forth, and comes to this conclusion, which I feel has not been sufficiently widely recognized, that in fact the IRA will slow the transition to a net zero world rather than accelerate it. Because inefficiencies and efficiency, it, it does matter. Like we need to have hmm. more efficient solar energy. We need to have more efficient wind energy. So if you introduce lots of distortions, you have less efficient solar energy and less efficient wind energy. And so you're actually in a worse position globally than you were before the IRA was introduced. Now, to be, to be clear, America, just America, its capacity goes up. So they're doing better on their climate goals, but the rest of the world is doing worse on their climate goals. And obviously what matters is what the world as a whole is doing. So I think this is you know, something we have to really think about very carefully. Like it, the, to, to a degree, the pursuit of jobs programs with, with clean energy can come at the expense of solving climate change mixed and, and contradictory goals. I mean, perhaps it's an unrealistic thought in my mind, but it seems to me some kind of a carbon tax would still be the ideal solution to climate change because it means the government not picking winners and picking individual companies to succeed and, and, and leaving market actors and invaders to try to figure out the most efficient ways to achieve climate goals. Totally. I mean, I think the problem is that, you know, the IMF has suggested that you need roughly $75 per ton of carbon as a as a as a as a global carbon carbon tax. The effective carbon tax at the moment is like three dollars. So like we're such a long way from that. And I do think it is a bit unrealistic. So I as as just to reiterate, I mean this idea of subsidizing things makes sense. I just think you don't need the jobs guarantees. Well Callum Williams from The Economist, thank you so much for taking the time to join the AI podcast. It's been a, a fascinating and enlightening conversation. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And if you'd like to follow the IEA's work, just visit iea.org.uk.